Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. When God gets a hold of our lives and our hearts and we become followers of Jesus, what that means is that we owe him everything. And uh, he gives us so much and so many blessings. And uh, we, out of gratitude, champion his cause for a lost and broken world. And what that ends up looking in people's lives, you know, does it work out to 10%? Uh, What I do know about uh, church finances is that a lot of people give way more than 10%. And not only that, uh, don't forget the serving that people do and the time and the effort that people put in around here. This is a, a very busy church. There's a lot that goes on here. And, it all, and none of it happens without sacrifice and without giving of time and, and, and uh, uh, abilities and so on. So uh, I hope you know that. I hope you know that the people sitting around you today uh, a high percentage of the people sitting right around you today give amazing amounts to, uh, to the Lord's work through, uh, through this church, and not just through this church either. Uh, you know, we're blessed to give to, to Honduras, for example, last night, and we process those monies, but a lot of you support children directly through uh, Fellowship National, and, and, and you give in other ways. And I, I just, I say that so... Uh, to say that, you know, you should feel blessed to be a part of this church. And I know, um, I sure do. I sure do feel blessed to be a part of a church that is so active and uh, gives and serves the way that uh, so many of you, you do. It's just a huge, huge blessing. Before we get into the book of Nehemiah, will you just join me uh, for a uh, word of prayer? Lord, I thank you for this tremendous church family and for all that um, they do and give. But beyond that, Lord, thank you so much for the work that you are doing in our hearts and in our lives, for all the blessings that we have. And you allow us to steward those things. And Lord, we don't always do that as well as we should, but uh, Lord, we just uh, recognize our need for your help this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we move forward as a church family and as individuals, that you would enable us, that you would strengthen us, that you would provide uh, for us that we might be able to serve you in this uh, world to be the kind of people that you would have us be. We pray that you would bless your word to our hearts this day to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you like building stuff? Yeah. I don't know anybody that doesn't like building something. Uh, You know, traditionally men, you know, like to build stuff, but my wife is a pretty amazing landscaper. If you've ever been to our uh, our home uh, and seen some of her work uh, inside and out, but... uh, um, the, the sword and the trowel, Nehemiah, the sword and the trowel is our symbols of the message of Nehemiah. And I spent a little bit of time thinking about this because each time we introduce a book, when we're on this three-year journey through the Bible that we're doing together, um, each time we introduce a book or an author, uh, we kind of have to study the whole book 
you understand, I hope that you understand that, because the book is a cohesive piece of literature, and it contains a lot of information, but it's all tied together, and, and it's tied together by the purpose of the book or the author, and that becomes the hermeneutical key to opening up the, the message uh, of the book. And, uh, and then when we've discerned that, we have to figure out how that ties into the whole Bible uh, and how it fits together, because it is one book, one grand story, one great narrative uh, of, uh, of our lives, really. So I hope you know that this three-year journey through the Bible has probably done more for me uh, uh, and for uh, Josh uh, as well. Uh, don't you just love Josh's preaching? Were you here last week? Did you get the, wasn't that awesome? Awesome. Love it. Um, yeah, but I'm 60. He's 30. Uh, I wish I could have preached like that when I was 30. What's that, Vance? Yes. Do you really want to uh, go there this morning, Vance? <laughs> there's one. In there. There's several in this crowd this morning. You know, it's exciting, though. We're studying through the, the Word of God together. You know, we're making our way through the Bible, and we're not just, you know, light reading, because the Bible's not light reading. Uh, if we're going to get out of the Bible what God wants us to get out of it, it's going to take some work. And it, but it's a, great, it's a great journey to be on, and I'm, I'm excited about that. So the sword and the trowel, what do they stand for? And they stand for, you could use different words, but they stand for warring and working. We could say they stand for uh, uh, battling and building. Um, and they are uh, key themes in the book. I, I would suggest to you that they are two of three major sub-themes in the book of Nehemiah, uh, in the, the Ezra-Nehemiah material. Um, and we'll talk about the third one in just a moment, but two of the main sub-themes in the book of Ezra-Nehemiah uh, in the Hebrew, they, they are together as one book in the Hebrew Bible. Um, two of the, of the three main sub-themes are warring and working, or uh, battling and building. Uh, but I want to just back up a little wee bit this morning and, and, and get a little bit of a run-on, because uh, la, two, two weeks ago I mentioned that it's hard to put the, the material in the Bible in a chronological order because we'd have to put things on top of other things. And I mentioned the, the Psalms as an example of that. Where do, where do the Psalms go? Well, they go throughout the history of the, uh, the Old Testament. And so uh, as a couple of examples this morning of that, uh, listen to these words from the psalmist. Okay, I'm not going to tell you where I'm reading from. You don't need to look them up. You've heard them before. Just listen as I, as I read. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willow there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Also from the Psalms, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. 
that our mouth was, was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And you who goes out weeping, bearing uh, the seed for sowing, shall come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Couple of psalms. One telling the story of the hearts of the people as they're looking back in the rearview mirror at the destruction in Jerusalem and in, in sitting in, in Babylon in captivity as they're being carried off from their land. And the second, the joy and exhilaration and just the pure joy of being restored back to that land once again in anticipation of the promises of God. I was thinking this week about Ezra and Nehemiah and thinking about how they represent a new generation. Just a few weeks back, uh, we were talking about uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua in the first several chapters of the book of Ezra, along with the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Um, those, uh, and, and last week, Mordecai and Esther, right? But, uh, but back uh, when we were talking about Zerubbabel and Jeshua, when we start talking about um, Ezra and Nehemiah, we've jumped about 80 years. You might not realize that or recognize it when you're reading, you know, because sometimes we're not aware of those things. People read through the book of Acts and don't realize you, you know, you're reading decades and decades of history. So, you know, it just helps understand these things. We're talking about a new generation. All right, a new generation has arisen. Uh, men like Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophet Malachi, and then, like I said last week, Mordecai and Esther. And they represent a new generation of Israelites. Mordecai and Esther were among the exiles that did not return. But all of this sets up the uh, uh, New Testament because these books that we're reading now and studying now are the last of the Old Testament storyline. Now, in your Bibles, if you go to uh, the historical books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you will find then which books after that? Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The last generation of the Old Testament storyline, which sets up the New Testament. So this is a new generation, but it's also the last generation that we get exposed to in the biblical narrative of the Old Testament, which is kind of Significant and pretty cool. So let's go. Here we go. You ready? Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. If you read the book of Esther, Esther chapter 1, verse 2, that's where the story takes place, Susa, which was probably, uh, I think, uh, was the... Uh, winter palace of the king of Persia, or one of them. 
so here he is in Susa. Uh, Hananiah, uh, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped. The word escape there, by the way, is related closely to the word that Isaiah used when he talked about the remnant that would return to the land. Uh, those who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Jerusalem. If I forget you, may I forget the skill of my right hand, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Yeah. Jerusalem. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. That's what he said. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your casts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. You know, sometimes they say success isn't all it's cracked up to be. But when someone uses the word success like this, it's significant. I was the cupbearer to the king. That's who the man was. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? The king of Persia. Because Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. So he's in um, Susa, in the Persian uh, citadel slash capital. Um, and he gets this, this news uh, that's not really news. It's like 150-year-old news. It's a... Uh, uh, you know, the Babylonian powerhouse had decimated the entire city, including all the important buildings and the walls some 150 years prior to this that we're reading. That was followed by 70 years of exile, and then another 80 years have passed. And where are the blessings that the prophets have spoken of? The land is still a mess. Yeah, the temple has been rebuilt, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and uh, Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets. But it's not nearly as impressive as the old temple. The priests and the Levites are serving and the offerings are being made and the feasts are being observed. But there are just pitiful situations there. 
And now we have a new generation that is somewhat scandalized by the situation. So here we have Nehemiah, and he's like, he's just, he's so distraught. He's, he's so moved by this news. And he said, this is, this is terrible. This is unacceptable. Someone needs to do something about this. You ever feel that way? <laughs> I have to be honest. I probably felt more that way when I was younger than I do when I'm now. I'm just, just going to be honest and say to you that I tended to feel a whole lot more that way when I was younger. And you know, it's typical for every generation to feel that it needs to change the world. And it's typical for every generation to feel that they're going to change the world. Because there's a particular sense of promise that comes with every new generation as people step out and step up to make a difference. And that's a good thing. That is a very good thing. And it is, is as it should be, and I pray it will not ever be different than that. So the news might not be new. It isn't new. But it might as well be new for Nehemiah. Because right there on the spot, when he got that news, something happened in that man's heart. And he made a commitment. Right there and then, Nehemiah made a heart commitment. He said to himself, I'm going to take action to rectify the situation. That's the very first thing that happened right there in the moment of time. Nehemiah made a commitment to change the situation. And then the very next thing he did was pray. Serious prayer. His prayer was so serious, not only did he start confessing, which is really an important place to start with serious prayer, but then he went on to do something very, very important, very strategic. You'll want to listen to this. He started to quote God's words back to him. You can read them in verses 8 through 11. He's quoting directly from God's word, and he's quoting them back to God, which is a very effective way But there's something else that Nehemiah began to do at the same time. Made a commitment, and he began to pray. But even as he began to pray, he began to do something else. He began to plan. And those two things, praying and planning, went together beautifully for Nehemiah. Because he began to pray about everything he wanted to be able to do. recognizing that he needed God to work. He knew he was going to need to work himself. He knew he was going to need to act. He knew he was going to need to take action. But he also knew that God was going to need to work. If anything significant was really going to happen, then he would need to work, but God would need to work. And he knew it was going to be hard, and he knew he was going to have to fight for the dream, but he also knew that it would all be futile if God didn't fight for him. 
So he prayed, and he planned, and he acted, and the sword and the trowel are strong symbols of the storyline of Nehemiah because it is an action-adventure story about warring and working, about battling and building, both of which are major themes, but both are inspired by faith in God because both are inadequate without God and without God's intervention because faith in God should be a catalyst for action in our lives. And faith manifests itself in our lives, first of all, in prayer. As we go through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a doer. He was, like many of you, somebody who looks, sees, and moves. Um, the office of the cupbearer sounds so trivial to us, you know. So you're saying he was like a waiter. No. <laughs> Nothing even remotely like that whatsoever. He was more like the king's most important confidant. The reason he was the cupbearer is that nothing got through to the king without going by him. Right? So this man, Nehemiah, was a man of action. He was a success. He was a, a, a man of action. He was born to exiled slaves, but had been positioned by God. Remember Esther? And a great deal of competence and fidelity on his part, no doubt, and was in now in a prestigious and influential position in the imperial courts of the Persian uh, Empire. But he was not a self-made man. He was a man of faith. And he prayed. And he planned. And he acted. Nehemiah chapter 1 is a fairly long extended season of prayer. But that's not the only kind of prayer we find in the book of Nehemiah. We find other kinds too. There's what we call it, the arrow prayer. People call this the arrow prayer in chapter 2. Did you notice that when you were reading through? Well, you say, what's an arrow prayer? An arrow prayer is the kind of prayer you just fire off to God while you're on the fly. You know? You're, you're, you're busy, you're, you're, you're working, you're, you're fighting, you're active, you're moving, you're going, you're doing. And you're praying. Prayer is not just something we do before. Prayer is the operating principle of our lives if we're living by faith, right? And so chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. He'd been praying for a season now, remember, right? Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? It's all part of the plan. Not that he was being insincere, but he's working the plan here. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Just quick note that faith doesn't necessarily displace fear. It overcomes fear. 
Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you want? What are you, what are you requesting? So, I sent off a prayer. And I said to the king, many places in the book of Nehemiah you're going to see this, and this is one of them right here. Look at those words. Look at those words. Thank you. So I prayed to God, the God of heaven. Verse 5 says, and I said to the king. So I prayed to God, and I said to the king. Remember that. That's important. That's faith at work. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me back to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. That's an arrow prayer. And they're not just valid, they're critical. Aren't they? Especially if we're going to be people, people of action like Nehemiah. Are you a person of action? If you want to be a person of action like Nehemiah, then you also need, you're going to need a whole quiver full of arrow prayers, right? So King Artaxerxes granted his official Nehemiah his request. Um, but we get the message that it was God who put it in the heart of the king, and that's important. Because look at verse 8, chapter 2. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. See that? There it is again. The king granted me what I asked because of God. Because of my prayers, if you will. Um, that's a really important point. And what follows in this book is a lot of action and a lot of work and a lot of conflict and what gets accomplished, what gets accomplished in this, this story that we're in here right now is no small feat. But the author wants us to know how and why it happened. And he doesn't want us to, to miss the fact that the central character of the story of Nehemiah is God. That's important. What follows is a first-hand account of Nehemiah's great adventure. <laughs> he heads out for a long trip. It's a, it's a long trip. The Bible didn't talk much about the trip. It's got focus, right? And uh, he, he arrives in Jerusalem. And then the very next thing that happens, before anything else happens, opposition. It's the first thing that gets mentioned, verse 10. It's the first thing that gets mentioned. Now, opposition is often uh, presented as a major theme in Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as the, the whole storyline of the Bible, right? 
But uh, it's only a theme. Opposition is only a theme because if life was easy, there would be no work and no battle. Right? I mean, you don't fight for things that come easy. You don't have to fight for things that come easy. You don't have to do anything. You just let it come. That's quite a philosophy of life. Just let it happen. Become completely passive. And yet that is how sometimes we envision faith. We envision it as a passive thing. Nehemiah didn't. Nehemiah, for faith for Nehemiah, was a call to action. And a call to, to fight and to, and to work. Um, the only reason we have to battle in this world is because of opposition. And opposition is a fact of life in, in this world. You don't have to plan for it. I don't suggest you pray for it. We could say that the only reason opposition exists is because there are things we should be fighting for. That, that uh, opposition is real because the battle is real, not the other way around. How much, how much could we think about and talk about the subject of opposition? How much of a reality and how big of a reality is that in our lives? But I think we do better not that it's wrong to think about that. Well, I mean, Paul tells us not to be ignorant of his devices, right? The enemy's devices. But I think we have to be careful that we understand that the, 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 uh, the real question is not so much what we're fighting against. It's what we're fighting for. If you believe that God has a purpose and plan for your life, do you believe that? Do you believe that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Because if you do, that's worth fighting for. And it's worth working for. And you will have to work, and you will have to fight. Opposition comes in many forms. One of the forms that opposition comes in is the form of people. And it's at this point in the storyline we're introduced to some. A couple of characters. One named Sanballat. He's a Horonite. And a guy named Tobiah, who's an Ammonite. He's the Ammonite servant. Now be careful. You hear the word servant and you think, oh, it's just a, it's just a messenger boy. That's not what the word means here. It would be more like you referring to... Uh, well, I don't know who our minister... Who's our minister of finance right now? Morneau? Okay. So we call him... We, if you meet him, you might say, Minister Morneau. And that's the idea here. Um, so it's not a demeaning term in any, any, in any way at all. These are significant... These are significant men. These, are, these aren't just your average Joes. And we'll learn more about them as the, as the story unfolds. But the text here, right here, is interesting. And it describes them like this. It says that these men were displeased. They, and it displeased them, verse 10, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. 
they were in opposition because it really displeased them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. It's not uncommon for people to take the position uh, in life that, that someone else's well-being and prosperity is a threat to their own. It's not uncommon for people to adopt the position or the attitude that the only really real way to get ahead in this world is on the backs of other people. Or at least, you know, taking advantage of other people or at least uh, by keeping ahead of other people. You know, it's getting ahead. Getting ahead of who? Getting ahead of what? These are things that are in us, that are part of our, our flesh. And these guys, they represent very strong, very significant opposition to Nehemiah and to what he wanted to do, to his dream. So Nehemiah comes into Jerusalem with his royal entourage. He has his official papers. You can see that there in, in uh, those verses as well. From the king, the king gave him uh, the, the papers he needed, the letters he needed, the soldiers he needed, the supplies he needed. Even He rolled into town with all kinds of timber. I mean, we're talking people running out in the streets and going, who is this? Wow, this has got to be somebody. This has got to be somebody really powerful and really important and really significant. He was a successful man. He was a powerful man. Um, and he comes into town, and he doesn't tell anybody anything. He takes three days. He does a, he does a, a thorough inspection of all the walls, but he does it at night on horseback. And it reminds me a little bit of Mordecai's counsel to Esther to keep her mouth shut. Um, but in Nehemiah's case, it's not just the enemies that he's thinking about. It's not just his enemies. Uh, he doesn't even tell the leaders or the people of Jerusalem what he's up to. And there's reasons for that. I'm sure he had his reasons, and we could speculate as to what they were. But the important thing is to note that Nehemiah is a skilled leader. He's being very strategic here, very thoughtful. And those are good things. And he can say, oh, well, God's going to do it, and I'll just, I just won't worry about it. That's not biblical faith. Sometimes we might think it is, but we get confused. Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18. Then I said to them, this is where he lays it out, okay? After three days, he's inspected all the while, and, and he says in verse 17, Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the gates are burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may go, no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me and also of the words of the king. There it is again. I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me and also of the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And I said, let us rise up and build. Let's get up and get this Done. Let's do it. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Good work. Not destructive work, constructive work. Not insignificant work, important work. Because Nehemiah was a man of action. He was a leader, and he's, uh, he's used to getting things done, but he recognized that God's strength, uh, his strength came from God. He said to the people, the hand 
of God has been upon me. Let me tell you about that. That's what he said. Let me tell you what God has done in my life and what he has put in my heart. And he cast that vision and he shared that dream and he shared his calling and the calling that God had put on him and they got up and they went to work. And the very next thing that happened was what? Opposition. It's always the next thing that happens. Read through the story over and over again. It's always the next thing that happens. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, uh, Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab, this time there's, there's the third guy, okay? Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and they said, what is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So they start with ridicule and they quickly transition to slanderous accusations of high treason against the king. Nehemiah, not deterred. He had those papers. Maybe they were in the satchel on his horse saddle. Maybe they were there in his chest pocket. I'm not sure. But he had the papers, and he believed that God had his back. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. He replied to them, the God of heaven, are you listening? There it is again. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will rise up and build. See it again, right? There it is again. And you're going to see it again. Because it's the whole idea, right? Um, he knew uh, that the Lord had his back. And he knew that the Lord would strengthen his hands. But rather than that knowledge making him passive, it seemed to have the opposite effect on Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3 is a list of the people who took the work on the wall, uh, part of the success story of Nehemiah is how the people stepped up and stepped out and went to work. It mentions goldsmiths, perfumers, women, priests, Levites, shopkeepers, young people, old people, all working together with Nehemiah leading the way. Chapter 4 is all about what happened next. What was that? What always happens next? Opposition. From the very start to the very end. You may recall Ezra chapter 4 through 6, how the temple, when they were rebuilding that, 80 years prior, stood the, years, the work stopped for years because of opposition before it resumed under the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, when Sandalot heard uh, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, <laughs> take note of the soldiers, right? We're talking real opposition here. These are not ordinary Joes. We know that from extra-biblical um, sources, we know that Sanballat was, or became at some point, the governor of Samaria. And they were organized enough they had an army. That's significant. Um, according to the uh, Elephantine Papyri, uh, his sons were acting for him by the year 407, and they all had Hebrew names, which is interesting. Tobiah is by his side, uh, and he was likely the governor of Ammon. And uh, this is formidable opposition. We also know that at some point between um, between the 3rd century B.C., 
and the time of Jesus, the Samaritans had built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And Josephus, the historian, said that that created an irreparable breach between the Jews and the Samaritans. Those things are all significant as we come into the New Testament, aren't they? By Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, the wall is half built. And before we get too excited, we all know, I think, and maybe you've never built a wall, but I think we all know that the first half of the wall is the easy half. Right? And you'll never guess what happened next. <laughs> the Ashdodites joined the opposition party. I don't know. I never looked to see if they were the uh, basically representing the Philistines or not, but Ashdod was a city in Phil Philistia, so I'm assuming it was. And, you know, the, these poor Jews, they must have seemed like, like the whole world was against them. I'm sure they did and still are. Um, so the opposition plotted and the Jews prayed and they kept right on working on the wall under Nehemiah's leadership. But that doesn't mean they didn't get discouraged. Do people of faith ever get discouraged? <laughs> So look at verse, look at verse uh, 10 of chapter 4. Judah, it was said, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So they said, said in so many words, they said, we can't do it. We're not going to be able to do it. How many of you have, uh, have had experience with young children? Have you ever heard them say those words? I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. Let me tell you a secret. If you haven't learned it already, I'm sure most of you have. Most, I'm sure most of you have learned this already. But, but here's the secret. You have no idea what you can do. You have no idea what you can't do. And when you bring God into this, and this is, this is how it works, see, this is, this is it, right? This is the point. Don't miss the point. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 4? Brian Bird's not here, or outside ask him, it's his, it's his life first. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They're halfway, and uh, opposition comes up. They get discouraged. Uh, they say we can't, we can't do it. You know, the threat is real. Um, verse 11 says that they, uh, you know, they will not know, the enemy said they will, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them. That'll stop them. We'll just kill them. So the threat, the threat was real. I mean, I don't, I don't want to downplay this, you know, discouragement. It's like a bunch of whining babies here. This is serious discouragement. We're, we're not going to, you know what? You reach that point, it's like, you know what? We're not going to be able to do this. And uh, 
Nehemiah. Chapter 4, verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. There it is again. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And they went back at it again. And they went at it hard. Half of them worked while the other half stood guard. Verse 16. Maybe they did it in shifts like they did in the old western movies. I'm not sure. But they were warring and they were working. Warring and working. Fighting and building. Verse 17, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held the weapon with the other. That's the sword and the trial right there. I want to come back to that in a minute. But chapter 5, guess what happens next? Opposition. If you said opposition, you'd be right. However, it might not be what you think. Because this time, it's not people. It's a famine. Now, if you've, been go if you've been with us since the beginning of this three-year journey, famines are really theologically significant, and we don't have the time to get into it. But God had told the people, if you serve me and you follow me, there won't be any famines. This is something really significant here. Have you ever run into this in your life? You're serving God. You're doing what you feel God in your heart sincerely, what God wants you to do. And, and it's like, God, what are, you, what are you doing? And it's not just that. It says, and there was internal strife. It's one thing when your enemies oppose you, but within the, within the family of believers... What about when we face opposition from each other? That takes it to a different level, doesn't it? And sometimes, you know, uh, the way we interact with one another and the way we treat our own is, um, is really discouraging. And, and, and not only that, but how many of you know that a lot of the time we are our own worst enemies? Yeah. Um, Nehemiah 5, 1 to 3. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain uh, that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff in here. Uh, big problems, personal greed, uh, people taking advantage of other people, charging usury. If you're not familiar with the word usury, look it up, U-S-U-R-Y. It's an important word in the Old Testament. Um, people were having losing their properties. Debt was an issue. There were all kinds of problems, and people were taking advantage of other people, but not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man of power who used his power for good. He was the governor of this uh, region. 
Power invested, him by, invest, invested in him by the Persian royal court, and he was the governor for 12 years. He served as the governor of Judah during that time, and he did not take, he gave. He fed 150 men every day for 12 years. Talk about a success story. He rose to the top, and then he used his wealth, his power, and his position to help other people. And that makes him a hero, doesn't it? It does. Now, if you read to the end of the story, you'll find out that Nehemiah wasn't perfect. Uh, he, even people who accomplished great things, even great things for God, are still flawed people. And uh, but we'll talk more about that. Uh, Lord willing, we'll talk more about that next week. Chapter 6. What happens next? Opposition. The enemy conspires. Nehemiah has made himself a target, so they go after him. And they go after him hard. And they try to set up a meeting. And they say, can you meet with us in a place called Oh No? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, I'm doing a great work. And I can't come down. I remember as a young Christian hearing a sermon preached on that text that inspired me. I remember, I don't remember even who preached it, although it probably was Ed Henderson. Uh, but he, I remember him preaching, don't let anything distract you. Are you listening to my words this morning? Don't let anything or anyone distract you uh, away from the most important thing of all, which is serving the Lord and make your making your life count for him. He said, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. They try four times. They send an open letter with all kinds of accusations in it. Nehemiah's response, he prayed. And this is what he prayed, chapter 6, verse 9. God, strengthen our hands. God, strengthen our hands. There it is again. Don't miss it. The text then records that they hired, they hired a crony to go after Nehemiah uh, personally once again, but he, he was sharp. He saw through their plans. And then in chapter 6, um, more opposition again, and it's interesting there because it refers to a number of prophets, including a prophetess named Noadiah, who worked to oppose Nehemiah as well. That's a lot of opposition, continuous opposition from beginning to end. You'll be happy to know, I have to tell you this, they finished the wall. Chapter 6, <laughs> 52 days later, chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 12th day of the month, Elul, in, the 50, in 52 days. And when all our enemies, listen to this, when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived what? What did the enemies perceive? They perceived that this work has been accomplished with the help of our God. There it is again. That's the main point, I think. The work inspired and the battle required in our lives is first and foremost a work God does in and uh through us, and a battle that he fights for us. So before anything else, it has to begin with our faith in him. Where is your faith this morning? 
Now, I'm completely out of time and I've gone over. I still have a couple pages left there. I had a really good conclusion and I can't remember what it was. Um, we record these video recordings. I have a ha bad habit of walking off camera, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to just stick this over here. Would you like to uh, stand with me this morning? Now we've covered a lot of a lot of ground, right? Literally, <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and th and there's more in there. When we come into the New Testament, working and fighting, God working us, working, God fighting us, fighting. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God. You, things you need to know about the fight you're in. Work. What does building up the kingdom of God look like in the New Testament? It's, it's, there's a lot there. But this morning, I want to ask you a question about your faith. Because you know what? It's not so much whether you have faith or you don't have faith because all of us have faith. The question is, what's your faith in? The Bible talks about different kinds of faith, you understand. Nehemiah's faith was the type of faith that didn't cause him to be passive or, or to, you know, didn't cause resignation shot him like an arrow. It, it catapulted him into action. To make a difference in this world. In the name of the Lord. Is that the kind of faith that, that you have? Is that the kind of faith I have? That's the kind of faith God wants us to have. And so as we pray and ask God's blessing on his word to our hearts today, I, I, I hope that you'll do some, some serious thinking in your own heart before God this morning because ultimately all of us need to answer directly to him. You, you don't go to God through me. I don't go to God through you. All of us, because of Jesus, have the opportunity to go directly to God through faith in Christ, and I encourage you this morning as we pray together. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, I thank you for this tremendous group of people this morning and for their patience and for their uh, attentiveness. Uh, Lord, uh, we come before you uh, as flawed people, but, oh God, that we might have the kind of faith in, in you because, Lord, you there is no flaw in you. There is no shadow of turning in you. There is nothing in you that is not good, excuse me, good or beautiful. Uh, Lord, uh, and that our eyes might be on you and that our faith might be in you, that you, that we would recognize that it's you that gives us the strength in our hands and that's you that enable us to plan well, to work hard, and to fight for the things that, that are worth fighting for. Help us, Lord, this morning to know what that is. Help us, Lord, to know what your will is for our lives. And then, Lord, strengthen us and embolden us. Would you do this, please, Father, that we might pull out all the stops and that we might become people of faith like Nehemiah, Lord, that we would become world changers, that we would be used of you to make different, the difference that matters in this world, that you would work in us and through us, even as you fight for us. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.